Well, we are in part two of a series that Pastor Pete started last week called, here it is, The Church Deployed. And if you haven't had a chance to um, listen to that or to watch that, I'd encourage you sometime this week to do that. It was so helpful. But Pastor Pete really ended with this big thought. The church is not a building. The church is not a service. The church is the people of God on a mission from God to a world in need. And today we get the joy of focusing in on that first part, the people of God, the church. And, and the church is not a what? The church is a who? The people of God. And, and have you ever wondered what God sees when he thinks about the church? Have you ever wondered what he pictures? Because scripture gives us a, an image that we can go to. It's in Revelation 7. It says this. This is John talking. John was one of Jesus' followers while he was alive. It says, after this, I, John, looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you picture it? Can you picture what, what God sees? It's an incredibly diverse group of people, and it's not just our church, all shores. It's not even just the churches in, in Coopersville or Muskegon or Spring Lake. It's not even just the churches in America or even the church in the 21st century, but the church truly spans every page of history and throughout the corners of the world, and we're all standing in one place, one church. It's what God sees when, when he pictures the church, and if you're a Christian today, that's our future. That is our preferred reality. That's where we're heading. That's what we're ultimately working towards, but it's not just a part of our future. It's a call that God has given the church today right now, is that if you're a Christ follower, what we're called to do is not necessarily operate in silos of sameness. Like in heaven, it's not going to be white church or black church or the Latino church or the um, Asian church. It's not going to be the Ethiopian church or the Canadian church or the Colombian church, but we're all going to be one. We're not going to be in silos of sameness, but we're going to be a fellowship, a gathering, a community of different people of difference. And we see this in the early church, that this isn't just our future. This is actually a part of our call right now is that the early church was made up of all different kinds of people. In fact, one of the reasons that the early church was so hated in its day, why there was so much persecution is that they did not follow the rules of their society. And their society was even more structured than ours was. But in the early church, you found fishermen and you found tax collectors that you found Pharisees who were the religious elite and you found blind beggars. You find those who had been demonized. You found women of high regard and you found women of ill repute who had been prostitutes. You found Jews and you found Gentiles. You found Roman officers. You found centurion soldiers that when you looked across the church that it, it spanned every part of their culture and they were all together in one place. Paul describes it this way. In Galatians 3, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. You see, in the early church, it played out like this, where you would have Jews and Gentiles come together, where normally if a Jew entered a Gentile's house, they would be unclean. They couldn't go back to their Jewish brothers and sisters for a time. But in the church, they could eat together and be one. You had a slave and a slave owner who, when they came to the church, the slave owner could actually serve the slave. The slave could go first. That one was neither higher or lower, but they were equal at the table. That in a society where men had all the authority and women had no voice, that that was not true in the church. That women could go in front, that women could use their voice and their gifts just like men could. This wasn't true of their culture, but this was true of the church. And my question this morning is, what makes that possible? What, what helped them to sit together in unity rather than to section them off in hostility? And the one thing that I, I think we can point to today, and this is what Jesus said about his church, is it's love. I hope that doesn't sound mushy to you, because it's not. When disagreement arose, the only thing that kept them together was love. And it wasn't just any kind of love. It was a radical kind of love. This is what Jesus said to his disciples about the church. When he was talking about the defining quality of this, of this already, this community, this fellowship of difference, the defining quality for how the world would know that the church really was being the church was this. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another by this, by this, by this thing. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It was the, it was the glue. Pastor Pete said it this way a month ago. He was talking about our mission, which you just heard from Pastor Nate, about being radically loving and growing together in Christ. Pastor Pete described it this way. He said, radical love is the love that we have for each other in our differences. Because a community of difference, you know this, there's lots of differences. There's lots of things that we fall on different, different sides of, and yet love is the thing that keeps us together. And our mission is to continue to grow in our love until we display it to others as we grow together in Christ. And that's all I want to talk about today is, is how can we take one step? Like if, if, if we're supposed to move forward towards this preferred reality of what heaven calls us to, of what we'll all experience one day. If we're supposed to move forward, what's the next step? Because I know we can talk about what it looks like, but in, unless we talk about how we get there, it's gonna be hard for us to realize it in our own lives. And so in order to do that, we are going to spend the rest of our time today in, in probably the most famous story in the whole Bible. Even if you have never been to church, this is your first time, You've, this will probably ring a bell. It's in Luke 10. We'll start in verse 25 and 26. It starts this way. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus so often does, he responds to a question with a question. He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? To which the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What the lawyer is doing is he's pulling a key passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, and he's using it. But what's interesting is that the loving your neighbor as yourself isn't in that passage. 
is he's actually pulling that from a different place in the Old Testament and he's piecing them together. Ultimately, what he's doing is, is he's connecting love for God and love for people, that they're not separate, that if, we, if you want to see how, about how well you're loving God, it would, you would look towards how well you're loving people, that they're not disconnected, but they're actually from the same source. Look at how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, this is cool, you have given the right answer, you're right, do this and you will live. The lawyer just should have gone home after that. Like how many times does Jesus ask you a question and you get it right? But scripture gives us an indication that he probably did not hear it that way. He probably heard it something like this. And Jesus said to him, yeah, you've given the right answer. Do this and you'll live. Act on it. Love is not a mental ascent. Love is something that we live. He heard it as a challenge. Something rose up in him because look at what he, look at what he says next. But wanting to justify himself... He asked Jesus another question, and who is my neighbor? Like, who are we actually talking about? If this is connected to eternal life, can we just clarify some things? Can we just talk about what circles of people we're talking about? Can you hear the question behind the question, church? He asked, who is my neighbor? But really what he's asking, come on, you can, you can hear it in here, is who's not my neighbor? Who am I allowed not to love? Who am I not responsible for? Like, where's the line in the sand? And ultimately, church, I want us to to go here today. It's not just who our neighbor is. And and we'll we'll, we'll learn more about that. Jesus will tell us a story in in the rest of this passage. But don't just look for who. Please, please, please look for how. Like if, if this radical love is the thing that is going to glue us together as we move from silos of sameness into a community, a fellowship of difference, we can't just look for who, but we have to look for how. How do we take another step? How do we move in the right direction towards the preferred reality? So listen as Jesus tells this story. It goes something like this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, oh, you you can't see that yet. Now you can. Now by chance, a priest was going down the very same road. And let me just stop here. This would have been a story that that would have readily connected with Jesus' audience. That Jerusalem was a place where priests came, And historical sources from that time indicate that for whatever reason, there was a large amount of priests in Jericho. And and since priests were of a higher class, it would make sense that this road would become dangerous because robbers and thieves would lie in wait for travelers. And so this, this makes a lot of sense. And we go on. A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, when he came to the man that was badly bruised, stripped, beaten, and broken... When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, when he saw the man, he too passed by on the other side. Now, this is where Jesus would have lost his audience. This is where it wouldn't have made sense because out of everybody in that culture, the priest and the Levite would have been the ones to stop. I mean, they were the pastors and and the worship leaders. And even more so, 
caring for a stranger was of incredible value for Israel because of their history as a nation where they had been mistreated and enslaved. You know, this parable doesn't implicitly name the man who was beaten on the side of the road as a Jew, but everyone would have, would have, has, sorry, everyone would have assumed that. Jesus was a Jew. He was talking to Jews. He was in a Jewish nation. It'd be like if I told you a story of someone who was going to the store, you would assume that it was happening in America and not in, not in South Africa, right? And so this man is assumed to be a Jew. So are the priest and the Levite. And so the question that, that haunts me is why? Why was it so easy for the priest and the Levite to pass by on the other side? And ultimately, Scripture gives us an indication. Is in the prior verse it says he was stripped, he was naked, he was bloody, and, and the clothes that people wore in that day signified their status, their ethnicity, their race, their, what tribe they were a part of. And so the reason that the priest and the Levite didn't stop was because they didn't recognize the man. They couldn't identify him that if they just would have gotten a little closer, if they just would have taken a few more steps, they might have realized that that the man was just like them. That the the only difference between the priest and the Levite and the man on the side of the road was timing. But they didn't get closer. Scripture says they passed by on the other side of the road. Here's what I want us to catch, church. We're talking about how, right? We're talking about what love looks like when it's lived in a community of difference. We have to see this is that love doesn't operate from a distance. It can't. Love gets close because distance magnifies difference. Distance magnifies difference. That the farther we are away, the, it magnifies the difference. Church, can, I, can we go deeper for a moment? I know we, I know we experience this, right? We ex- I mean, more than ever. In our, in our nation right now is that there's a lot of difference that we see, whether it's in person, in our community, on Facebook. And can I, just, can I just ask us to consider this? Is that is the difference that you feel between you and someone else, whether it's someone on social media or someone in our church or someone in our community, could it be, could it be, that it's not about your proximity to the issue but could the difference really be your proximity to that person? That if we would just get close, that we would see we're not that different after all. Can I say it this way? For the priest and the Levite, their distance kept them different. That if they just would have gotten close, they would have seen, but their distance kept them different. And that's exactly what we see next in this story. But a Samaritan, collective gasp in Jesus' audience, maybe not for ours, while traveling, came near, came near to him. And when he saw him, he was moved with, with pity. That word means compassion. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when he sees the crowd. Samaritans and Jews were mortal enemies. In fact, Jesus' audience would have assumed that that if Samaritans were in this story, that they would be a part of the robbers and the bandits, not the would-be hero, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's using someone who they never would have thought would have stopped. And, and let's give it to the Samaritan, too, because just like the priest and the Levite, he didn't know who the man was. 
right? He didn't know if it was a Samaritan on the side of the road because he couldn't recognize him. He didn't identify him, but the Samaritan did something that the priest and the Levite did not, which was he came near. And as he stuck took steps closer and closer. He might have even recognized that the man was a Jew, but something started to happen in him. This, this is this word, pity. Something started to well up in him, and I think it was something like this. The closer you get, the more you realize that whatever difference you had on the other side of the road, it may not be the most important thing right now. Church, you and I are called to get close. We're called to get close with people who are a different political leaning than us a different socioeconomic class than us, a different marital status. It's not just married people and single people and divorced people, but we're all one. It's different, a r- different race or ethnicity than us, a different faith background, a different fan base. Come on, somebody. Come on, say it with me. Love doesn't remain distant. Love gets close. It gets really, really close. The story goes on. The Samaritan didn't just get close. But he went to him and bandaged his wounds and having poured oil and wine on them to to heal them. And this is what we see about the Samaritan's love. This is what we see about our love as as a church. It ultimately calls us deeper into discovery. The Samaritan looked for the blood and he was trying to find where the wounds came from. And once he found them, what did he do? Did he doubt their severity? Did he downplay their significance? Did he minimize the man's pain? No. He met him exactly where he was at, and with oil and wine, he cleaned them. He took seriously the level of the pain that the man was experiencing, and I'm sure he would have loved to come across a less beaten man with less blood on his clothes, but he didn't ask the man to be any different than he was. We already learned that love gets close, but this is what we learned next, church. Love doesn't avoid pain but it presses into it, and pain requires patience. See, so often what happens for us as as human beings is that when we encounter pain, it's it's uncomfortable for us, and when we walk into someone else's pain, too often we call them to, to alter their differences before we engage in them, yet in the discomfort that we feel from seeing someone else's pain, we can't ask them to change it or explain it away. So when a newly divorced member of your couple's group stops attending, we press in. When a single person does not want you to try to hook them up with every other single person that you know, we press in. When someone on the team that you serve with or goes to school comments on your Facebook post and they stop talking to you, we press in. When we keep asking about how someone's kids are doing but they keep avoiding the answer, they never give direct answers, we press in. When people vote differently than we do, we press in. When you have a neighbor who is a person of color and they don't feel safe in your neighborhood even though you do, we press in. When their experience in our nation is different than my own, we press in. Church, what do you do when you see a dis- what do you do when you see a difference? Do we remain distant? Do we avoid pain or do we get really really close? And do we press into it? Unless you're tempted to think that I have this all figured out, can I share some of my own brokenness? So in fifth grade, um, we all went out to recess. There was a group of boys who were playing jackpot, you know, the game where you play football and everyone tries to catch it. And me and this other kid, I'm white, he's black, 
went up for it. He jumped higher than I did. I lost my balance and I fell into a puddle of mud with my new jeans on. Come on, somebody. And, uh, and for whatever reason, I snapped. And so I ran after him and I just started pushing him over and over and over and over. And the whole time, with hands behind his back, he was resisting me as if to say, man, whatever you want to do, this is not happening right now. But I just kept pushing him over and over and over and over until finally a teacher came and separated us. Guess who got in trouble? Guess who had to go sit on the wall? Guess who got off scot-free? Guess who never even got talked to? Guess who got to go back into class with his classmates and teacher and learn? Guess who didn't? Guess who got to go home that night and didn't have to talk to his parents about how he got into a fight at school? And guess who had to go home to his parents and, and talk about why he got in trouble? Guess who, when they laid their head down in the pillow, never had to question whether he was a violent young man or a troublemaker, breaking the rules? And guess who, when he laid his head down on the pillow, he had to wrestle with why, even though he had done everything to defuse the situation, why his voice didn't matter, why his actions didn't matter. Church, I wish I could say that that, that was the last time that I walked on the, on the other side of the road from my black brother. I wish I could say that was the last time I accepted preferential treatment because of the color of my skin and not my actions. I wish I could say that from that day on, every time I saw a difference, I got really close and I pressed into pain and, and I didn't avoid it. But if I were to say that today, that would not be true. Because I'm, I'm finding all the more ways that I'm acting unlovingly and walking on the other side of the road. And church, I for one, I repent of my selfishness and of my pride. And, and I reject the notion that our culture tries to put on me that my life is my own. And that I'm not responsible for anyone else's experience. That, that their experience in life are no consequence on my own. I want to live differently. And I'm inviting you to do the same. Because we are, are working towards something. We're moving towards something. That we don't operate in silos of sameness. That's not what we're called to do as the church. That may be how the culture acts, but not us, not the church. We're moving towards something better. We're working towards something. We are taking steps. This last verse sums it up so well. Then the Samaritan put the man on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day he took out his own money and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay whatever more you spend. See, for the Samaritan, love was not a box to check. It wasn't about duty. It was about ownership. Here's the last thing we learned about love. Remember, we're talking about how it looks and what we need to do. Love doesn't shy away from sacrifice because sacrifice is the highest expression of love. You know why this is so important? Because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That when he saw us on the other side of the road, when our bodies were broken and bloodied, when we were naked, he didn't despise us, but he, he got really close. And when he saw the desperate need that we have, he, he came down. 
And he bandaged our wounds. He cleaned them out to, from the suffering of sin. And then he picked us up and he supported our weight on his own shoulder, just like he would the cross. And then he took us to a place of healing and of rest. And when we couldn't pay the fee, he paid it for us. And he stayed with us and he, and he helped us. And then just like the Samaritan left and, and what he said, he'd come back. Jesus is coming back. And church, hear my heart. Jesus is coming back, and that's good news, but what will the state of the church be when he returns? Will it look any different? Will we be any closer towards that preferred vision, that future of where we're going in heaven, or will we still be operating in silos of sameness? Church, today, I hope that we can take a step towards a community of difference where, where our experience doesn't have to negate another's, but where there's room for everyone. This is our journey, church, as a group of people who will continue to take steps on our journey, not just to a mental ascent of love, but to living it out, that we refuse to stay distant, that when differences arrive, we get really close. And when we encounter someone else's pain, we don't avoid it. We don't ask them to change it, but we actually press into it. And finally, when an opportunity arrives for us, to, for us to love them, we make a willing sacrifice. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. This is a how message. I want to help you today. And so if you're writing these down, I'm going to go through these quickly. Maybe you just write down the, the words in yellow. But what can you do today? Maybe it's to get close in conversation. Not to shut it down, but to press in, to ask why. Maybe it's to press in through relationship. Church, what if we diversified our dinner tables? That it wasn't just a conversation over a screen. It wasn't a shouting match, but that we actually invited people in and we wanted to hear what they were experiencing. And finally, and only after these first two, when an opportunity presents itself to do something, that we would make a willing sacrifice. You know, I know for many of this, this is heavy. But heavy doesn't have to be bad. There's a lot of promise. And I have this, this cup to remind me of that. See, this cup was given to me as a gift for a wedding that I did last year. Of whom the groom was that, that other kid that I fought with that day on the playground who was racially profiled because of my actions and who experienced judgment, who experienced the consequences of my sin, but who forgave me, who invited me into his home, who invited me into his family, who invited me onto vacation with his family, who accepted me as one of his own, who we went on mission trips together, we laughed, we cried, and we're friends to this day. And church, do you know what this cup was used for at their wedding? It was for communion. That their first act as a married couple, two becoming one, right? They had made vows together, but ultimately, in and of themselves, they don't, they don't possess the love that they need to stay together over the long haul. And so their first act as a married couple to come together was say, Jesus, it's not our experience that is going to help us go the distance, but it's your experience on the cross that it's this cup, it's your body, it's your blood that we remind ourselves with so that when differences arrive, 
because they will. That it's your love that holds us together. So church, however discouraged you feel, may it not weigh you down so much that you cannot take a step. Because that's what we're all called to do. Just one step. And we're going to pray here in a moment, and I'm going to pray that God clarifies for you just one step. And that he opens up a willingness for you to be obedient. So church, will you, will you open your hearts up to me? Not to me, to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come here today in need of something different than the world can give. We're in need of something that only you can provide and that isn't even imaginable for the, wor- for the world, but through your communion, through your, what's your sacrifice, your life, death, and resurrection, that, that that was the only impossible thing and that you have called us to a life of community, not in silos of sameness, but in a fellowship, in a community of difference. And Lord, we don't know how to do that, but you do. And you've given this call to the church and the church is a group of people and people are individuals and we're all individually called to make a step so that the church at large can move forward, that we can move forward towards that that vision, that preferred reality that you have for us, that we can look more and more like you, more and more like that picture of what you see when you see the church, not separate brothers and sisters who who don't know how to get along, but brothers and sisters who dwell together in unity. So I pray that you would clarify for every person listening, worshiping, exactly what you want them to do. And yet I know that there are some of you out there who who you know that you don't have it in you to take that step, that you don't have the power to do this on your own because you haven't yet made a decision to have a relationship with Jesus as your Lord. And maybe sometime throughout this service, whether it was in the prayer or through the worship or as I've been speaking, that you feel prompted to take a step, but it's a big one. To give your life, to surrender your life to Jesus. And I want to make space for that moment because it's the most important decision you'll ever make. And and I'm not going to try to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up wherever you are or raise your hand. But I do want you to make this your moment. And in some way, pray this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I hear you. I hear you calling to me to surrender my life. And so I do so willingly. No one's forcing me. But I give you my life because you gave me yours. That you picked me up. You cleaned me off. You put me on your shoulder. You made room for me, and you will come back for me. And so I give you my whole life. I'm so sorry for going my own way, but I surrender myself to you. And and I would ask that your Holy Spirit would come inside of me, that it would make me new, and that you would help me to live a life worthy of the calling that I've received so that I can display your love to a hurting and broken world. And it's only in Jesus' name that I pray, and everybody said, Amen.